0: We are in the book of Revelation, the end times. Who believes that we're in the end times? (laughs) Very much. The end times. Come, Lord Jesus. As uh, we're looking at the book of Revelation, and you can turn there. It's the very last book in your Bible. Hit the maps and flip over a couple pages to your left. We're going to be in chapter 3 today. It's on page 1029 if you're going to use one of the Bibles on the pew rack uh, there in front of you, which you're welcome to take home and ha- keep it as yours. If you do not have a Bible, you need one. So take that one and uh, let it be yours. But in the book of Revelation, as we, as we have looked at this, uh, this was written by the apostle, the disciple John, who at the time he's writing this revelation, this vision he's given from Jesus. It is John, we believe, is in his upper 80s, low 90s age range, somewhere in there. He's the last disciple alive at this point. Um, He's been through a lot serving God. And he's been exiled to an island, a prison island uh, from Rome. You know, some people were asking this past week about how do we know John was thrown in a big vat of boiling oil in the Colosseum and walked out unscathed, and then Rome exiled him to Patmos uh, because of him being what they classified unkillable. A lot of that we gather from church history. Um, One of John's disciples, actually, was a man who wrote some of that stuff down in the second century that we get today. Um, uh, The only, I guess, two disciples we have and know for sure in Scripture how they died was Judas. Judas. And uh, James, John's brother, uh, who was executed um, in the book of Acts. Uh, The other disciples, uh, we gather from church history, being passed down through the centuries about how they died and where they died uh, along the way, including Peter, uh, who it's believed was crucified upside down. Um, And so we gather that as well about John. And so he's there on this prison island. When Jesus comes and gives him a vision and says to him, John, I'm going to tell you about what's coming in the end of the world. He says, and as I do that, I'm going to give you first seven instructions for seven churches that can be applied, we believe, universally to every believing church. And so that's what uh, we have. Chapter 1 of the book of Revelation is John turning around and seeing Jesus on this island. Chapter 2 and 3 are these instructions to these seven churches that we believe are for every believer, for every Christian. Uh, And so the last few weeks we've looked at those instructions uh, to a church in Ephesus, and Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And today in chapter 3 we're going to look at the last three instructions uh, to the last three of these churches. Start in chapter 3 in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis. And in that word, angel, if you weren't here uh, two weeks ago, uh, angel in the original language literally means messenger. So what, when Jesus says to the angel of the church, he's writing to the pastor of that church, the messenger of that church, the leader of that church. So he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So he starts off, says, I know your work. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. From everybody's perspective, everybody's perception, church in Sardis, you are a thriving Christian community. But Jesus says, I know the truth and that's not really what's going on there. Even though that may be perception, that's not reality. Some people say perception is reality, it's not. Perception's what you want it to be. Reality's reality. The perception of Jesus to the community there in <coughs> in Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth was what the Pharisees labeled him as, a liar, a drunk, a glutton. That wasn't reality at all. Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, the Messiah. Perception is not reality. A lot of times, we perceive a situation to be something because we want it to be that thing, not because it actually is that thing. Sometimes we believe bad stuff about people because we already have some bad thoughts about those people in our hearts. Sometimes we do the opposite. We overemphasize the good perception when there's a lot of bad going on. Perception is not reality at all. And Jesus is, is saying that to this church. Everyone perceives everything's hunky-dory and fantastic. Jesus says, I know the truth, though, guys. I can see what's in your hearts. I can see what's really going on. And he says, so wake up. Wake yourselves up from this stupor. Wake yourselves up from this spiritual, this spiritual sleep. Strengthen what is still within you Spiritually. He says, I have found your works that are, they are not complete. They are not fulfilled. They they are the bare minimum. You're not doing what God designed you to do, people. That's what he's saying to this church. He says, so you, you are dead men walking here as a church. Everyone thinks you're alive and active, but that's not really the way it is. Wake up, be watchful, pay attention. Fulfill the Lord's expectations for you. Complete it. Do what God has for you to do. Now, if you were this church, right, and what's going to end up happening is John's going to get this revelation, this vision from Jesus uh, and the angels throughout the rest of this book. He's going to write it all down, copy it seven times, or copy it once, uh, however they're going to do it, and he's going to send it to these churches, and they're going to stand up in front of the churches and read the whole thing front to back. And so all seven of these churches are going to hear what Jesus is saying about this church here in, in, in Sardis. So that's embarrassing enough. But then to have the guys stand up and read it to your church, the words of Jesus to you, saying, I know everybody thinks you're alive and well, but you're not. How would you feel if instead of Sardis, it said First Baptist Queen, and these were the words he wrote to us. This would be pretty harsh, pretty difficult. Imagine the pastor of that church, the messenger there at Sardis, sitting on the front row, hearing the messenger read this out as he shrinks down lower and lower in that pew. He says, I know your works. But in every one of these instances, even when Jesus says this kind of stuff, like there's something you need to fix, Jesus is giving them an opportunity to fix it. They're not too far gone. There's not, they're not past the point of no return. The only reason Jesus is saying this is so they can fix the problem. Jesus isn't going to tell us there's a problem to fix and not give us an opportunity to fix the problem. So he's telling these guys there's an issue you've got to take care of. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I come against you. So they're encouraged here to keep the faith. Remember then what you received. Heard it. Keep it. Repent. Turn from what you have been doing. Repent from this lackadaisical attitude, this uh, uh, sinless, faithless lifestyle, and turn back. And Jesus tells them there, he says, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to me, to faith, and turn back, he says, I am going to come like a thief. Suddenly, quickly, you don't know when it's going to happen, all of a sudden it's going to happen, and I'm coming against you. And as has happened, as we've read some of this stuff from last week, of all the people that you want to oppose you, you don't want Jesus to oppose you. You don't want to be found working against God himself. And so Jesus says, you better get it right, guys. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination. But they're not even trying to live the Christian life. They're in Sardis. All they're trying to do is maintain the facade. They're not trying to to have the right motivation in their heart. They're not trying to go out and do stuff. Because if you're trying to serve God, something you're going to do often is fall and fail. You're going to do it a lot. But But the mark of a faithful follower of Christ isn't that they're perfect. It's that they keep trying. They don't give up. They keep going even when they stumble, even when they fall, even when they slip up. They keep going. They keep going. That's faithfulness, perseverance. And so Jesus is telling these guys, I know y'all are messing up. Just keep going. Keep going. Keep following after me. Look at verse 4. Yet, Jesus says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy, they have not soiled their garments, they, their hearts are not uh, uh, faithless, are, are not dishonoring, are not, you know, dirty. Uh, these are, there are a few godly people left in, in the church. They have not allowed the negative influences of others to take them down, to tear them down, and yet their positive influence of those faithful ones is not enough to turn everybody back. They're doing everything they can just to remain faithful themselves, trying to pursue what God would have them pursue. I don't know if you've ever been a group in a group of people before and, and professing Christians, and you're the only faithful one in the group, it is far easier for them to influence you away from faithfulness than for you to influence them to faithfulness. Far easier. So, who you surround yourself with is important. Who you allow to influence you is important. Let's rephrase not just who you allow to influence you, what you allow to influence you is important. The stuff you take in on social media, the stuff you take in in music, the stuff you take in on streaming can have a profound impact on who you are becoming. I heard a podcast. I wasn't going to go down this road, but it was, it's been sticking with me all week. Of a pastor this week was on a podcast, and he used a lot of foul language on the podcast. And then I heard another podcast, he went on another podcast and defended what he said on the first podcast. And I thought, first off, I thought this guy has a low view of scripture and of the gospel and of God's purpose in his life. To to not even apologize, but defend the way he was talking. Uh But even in spite of that, he has allowed those that he surrounded himself with, either people or what he's watching or what he's listening to, to influence him so much that what's being said has seeped so deep in his heart, it flowed out in a public platform and was out there for everyone to hear. And then once it was out there and he couldn't take it back, he dug in his heels and wasn't going to go back on what he said. We have to be extremely careful of who and what we allow to influence us in all forms and factors, because the enemy is relentless, relentless. And he will do anything and everything. You may think at first this thing that's influencing you is not having an effect, but maybe that's just step three in a 2,000-step process. Satan's been at this a long time. He's just got to get you to take one step at a time, one baby step at a time, away from the Lord. And then one day you're going to wake up and think, how did I get so far? It just took a little bit at a time of him chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And so we have to be vigilant of the influences we allow to creep into our hearts and minds. Not just for our own sake, yes, but for the sake of those that we are influencing as well. Our family, our, the people we interact with on social media, our, our co-workers, our friends. We've got to be extremely careful. Be watchful, be alert, wake up in the words of Jesus here in this passage. Work at it. And then he says there in that verse 4, there are some there who, who, who there are still few names, the people who have not soiled themselves, they walk with me in white, They're, they are worthy that word worthy is interesting. It's, it, Jesus in meaning they have earned their worthiness. The worthiness that he's talking about here is their saving faith. These are people who are worthy. These are people who are believers in the gospel. That's why they're worthy. They're not worthy because they've lived perfect life. They're not worthy because they make good decisions. They're worthy because they have Jesus in their life. That's the only reason they're worthy. Uh, look at verse five. Jesus says, the one who conquers will be clothed Thus, in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means that last verse, he says in these passages, that this section of Scripture to this church in Sardis isn't just for the church in Sardis. By saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He's saying, if you have an ear on your head and you're able to listen, that doesn't mean a physical ear. If you're able to listen to anything, physically, spiritually, if, if you can receive any information, listen to what I'm saying. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He says, pay attention. <clears throat> the one who conquers will be clothed thus. will uh, never have his name blotted out of the book of life. will forever be one of my children and I will confess his name before my Father in heaven. Jesus said uh, in the Gospels that if you confess me before the Father, I will confess, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. We're supposed to be public in our profession of faith. We're supposed to demonstrate that we follow Jesus and he says, so follow faithfully there. And that word blot out is interesting. Uh, that phrase, blot his name out of the book of life. There's, there's lots of theories about this. Some believe that phrasing is, is just uh, idiomatic. It, you know, It's just uh, a way to describe what's actually happening. Um, that uh, our name is forever in the book of life, the book of eternal life, name written down, which it very well could be, absolutely. Um, that happens a lot throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, some others have suggested Taking what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that God uh, uh, desires all men to be saved is what it says there. The actual literal translation of the word desires in 1 Timothy 2.4 is God wills it. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.4, God wills everybody to be saved. And so if God wills everybody to be saved, but not everybody is saved, does that mean God's will is not powerful? No. It means that some people choose not to follow God's will. And so, if God wants us all to be saved, and some people don't get saved, they're not following what God's plan is for them. And so, to take that and apply it to this, what some lines of thinking are is that God's book of life is His intention, His his perfect plan, which is for everyone to be saved. And so, when people make the decision to not believe, their name is erased from the book of life, from God's perfect plan. That's what some believe. However it is, whether it is, uh, you know, just a way to describe, just, just um, um, poetic language, it could be to describe having eternal life, uh, or it is a demonstration of what's going on, erasing of the name from the book of life because of our decision not to believe, as some do not believe, uh, forfeiting their lives for eternity. Um, either way, it means eternal life, having your, book, uh, your name in the book. And so to this church in Sardis, Jesus is telling them to wake up, to wake up. And it's not just to them, it's to us. He's telling us, Christians today, in, in, in modern America, where we sit, De Queen, Arkansas, to wake up, wake up to our current behaviors, wake up to our current attitudes, wake up to what our, our attitudes and our behaviors produce in us, produce in us and produce in others. Wake up to it. Wake up to a long-lasting spiritual strength. Wake up to what Jesus would have him do in our lives. He says, realize what's really going on here and wake up. Wake up from the malaise that we put before our eyes and just allow ourselves to to, to operate in this temporary world and at times forget eternity because we get so caught up in the busyness of the moment. He says, wake up, guys. This thing's for real. We're talking about eternity here. So wake up. And then he continues on in verse 7 to the next church. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not just, not in Pennsylvania. That one wasn't there yet. (laughs) To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. Says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So very interesting things here. I mean, Jesus says, I hold the key of David. This comes from Isaiah twenty two, twenty-two, speaking specifically about the key of David. Uh, one of the chief officials in Isaiah 22 uh, had taken it upon himself to carve out uh, a grave for himself among the kings. He wasn't a king, he was just an official. Um, so he was removed as an official, as a leader. And his authority was given to another guy. And the symbol of that leadership authority that was given to the next guy, the leader, was called the key of David. The key represented the authority to have absolute access To anywhere and everywhere in the kingdom. To say no one has greater authority to the one who holds this key. And so that's what Jesus is saying. I have the key of David. I have absolute authority. There's no one who has more authority than me. Jesus says, I open the door and no one can shut it. I shut a door and no one can open. Have you ever tried to to, uh, go through a door that is locked that you thought was open only to bang your head on the door? Anybody? Just me? Uh, and so Jesus is saying here, what I shut, you, no matter how much you push, you can't get into the situation I'm not allowing you into. He said in the same way, if I open a door, no one's going to be able to shut the open door of opportunity as long as I have it open. He says, nobody's stronger than me. So Jesus opens this door, verse 8. This is an open door of blessing, an open door of glory, open door to eternity. It says it's open for anybody who wants to come in, can come in. Unrestricted access to eternal life if they just come in and believe. Uh, look at verse, oh, you know what? Actually, let's talk about that for a second. He says, you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Um, you have little power. The people themselves maybe have great strength and great faith, but maybe there's not very many of them. And the oppositional forces are so massive that it seems uh, that that they cannot overcome the opposition that they're experiencing there in their city of Philadelphia. And so he says, even though you have little power, there's not very many of you, uh, possibly. Um, Or maybe it's a limited influence, however it shakes out. He says, but in spite of the apparent odds against them, he says, you have remained faithful. Those apparent odds that are fighting against you have not stopped you from being faithful to your Lord. They have very little visual strength, but have nonetheless stayed strong in the faith. And that's the only strength that matters to Jesus. It doesn't matter what kind of influence you have in the community. It doesn't matter what people think about how strong you are physically. What matters is the strength Jesus knows you have in your heart. And so Jesus says, I see you, even when nobody else does. Verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. He spoke about synagogue of Satan back in chapter 2. Another church was dealing with that issue Uh, As well, people who were not serving the Lord, but serving Satan, Uh, who were not following after Jesus, but following after Satan in their actions and in their words and in their deeds. Um, Possibly they were Jews. Possibly they were part of a synagogue there in town Um, and, and, and did not realize their salvation doesn't depend upon their ancestry, but depends upon their faith. And Jesus is saying, these people who are coming against you, who are serving the enemy, trying to stop what I'm doing. He says, I will put a stop to them. And they will realize, I love you. They will realize, I'm on your side and standing up for you. It says, I am standing with you, so continue to stand strong. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth so this, is, this, this phrase, patient endurance, is something he's mentioned before to these other churches also. Be, having patient endurance is, is a way he's phrasing to these other churches, is remaining faithful, is, is believing in Jesus and not denying the faith. He says, you have done that. You have believed. He says, because of that, church, the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world, you will not participate in that. Uh, I will, he says, keep you from that. Moment. Now it's very interesting. Hour of trial, uh, because of their faithfulness, they will not undergo the testing that the rest of the world uh, is going to go through. Uh, specifically, uh, many believe he's talking about the rest of the book of uh, Revelation. Um, and so let's look at that. Let's look at um, verse eleven, and then we'll talk about him him saying they will not be a part of that trial. He says, "I'm coming soon." Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So being kept from the trial to the whole world, and then Jesus immediately following that phrase with, I am coming soon. There are some who believe uh, that he is talking about the rapture here, even though that word is not mentioned uh, anywhere in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's only mentioned one, uh, the, the Greek word, only one place in all of Scripture. Um, but it, the interesting phrasing uh, in verse 10 I will keep you from the hour of trial because of patient endurance, because you believe that it's coming on the whole world. So he's writing to this church in Philadelphia about a trial that's coming on the whole world. The trial's not coming just to Philadelphia or just that region. It's on the whole world in order to try those, to test those who are alive on the earth at the time. And then he says immediately in verse 11, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. So there are many who believe uh, in A good number of the guys that I read believe um, that the church, as far as believers, will not experience what the the testing and judgments that are going to come in the rest of the book of Revelation. Um, I mean, Revelation doesn't necessarily speak to that specifically, uh, but that line of thinking comes from these verses, as well as the phrase church being mentioned so many times in chapters two and chapters three, and then not mentioned again beyond uh, in the rest of the book of Revelation, as we'll get into as we get into the actual uh, trials and judgments that are coming. And that may be, possibly, uh, Revelation doesn't tell us specifically. So we can't, one way or another, say that's what Jesus is meaning by this verse. Um, at times, myself, I've come down on both sides of that line of thought. Uh, believing they are not there, believing they are there. Um, but he's not specific there, and I think he's not specific there for a reason. Because either way, we're supposed to trust him. Whether he takes us before it comes, we've got to trust him that he will. Or whether he doesn't and we endure, we've got to trust him. It's all about having faith. It's all about trusting God. We have to trust him no matter what comes. Trust him whatever we face. However difficult it gets, we've got to trust him. But we do know from these verses, he's telling us here, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. He could be meaning the whole shebang. He says, and a reminder, I am coming soon, so hold fast so you may seize your crown. Now, he's not talking about a crown in regards to you know, uh, salvation. This crown is not about salvation. You don't have to hold on to it like you're going to lose it. Uh, this is about Rewards. Um, The crown, like in Revelation chapter 4, talks about a crown in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about a crown in this way. Um, It's about rewards that we can then offer back to Jesus like an offering. And so he says, uh, hold on to that. That means continue to live the Christian life going forward. Verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write him... Write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's got this, this pillar. It's in the presence of God. The, the pillar, that's what that means. The pillar is always in the presence of God. It's in the temple. Um, and so as pillars, we will be pillars in the presence of God. So he's going to write these three things on us. He's going to write his name. He's going to write the name of the new Jerusalem, heaven, He's going to write Jesus' name because of Jesus' sacrifice. So the name of God, the name of the, of, of the city. Um, so we have God's name, sign of whose we are. New Jerusalem, heaven. A sign of, of the, where we're going to live, heaven. And the, sign, and the name of Jesus. A sign of the price that has been paid to be in God's presence for all eternity. Um, he tells us, to this church, through this church in Philadelphia, what he says to this church in Philadelphia, this faithful church in Philadelphia. They've they've remained faithful. He doesn't say negative things about them. He says, I know your faith. I know it. I know it's hard and it's difficult, but I know your faith. Size and influence mean nothing when compared to faithfulness. So hold fast to faithfulness. And then, like the pillar in the temple We will be in his presence for all eternity. Hold fast to faithfulness. And that word hold fast there, if you look back at verse 11, I love this word. It means to be unrelentingly and unwaveringly strong. Unrelentingly and unwaveringly strong in your faithful lifestyle. Be unrelenting in your strength when it comes to your faithful lifestyle. So Jesus said to the church in Sardis, wake up. And now to this church in Philadelphia, he says, be strong. Wake up, be strong. As we get into, I want you to remember those two phrases as we get into the last church here. Wake up, be strong. Uh, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The words of the Amen, the faithful the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Laodicea, the last city, last city here. This this city has been in sharp spiritual decline for about three or four decades leading up to this moment. And Jesus says, I'm writing to you guys there in Laodicea, people, is the words of the amen. That means verily, truly, that means it emphasizes what is around it. He is the truth, uh, Jesus is saying. But then he says this weird phrase, the beginning of God's creation. Now, Jesus was not created. In John chapter one, we learn that all, all things that have been made were made through Jesus. So all of creation is created because Jesus created it. So why would Jesus then say he is the beginning of God's creation? Because all creation began with Jesus. It doesn't mean he was the first thing to be created. It means all creation began with him. He is the beginning of it. He started it. He himself started creation. Jesus continues talking, verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. A lot's been said about these verses. Lukewarm Christian, neither cold nor hot. Now, a difficulty we have and a problem we have when it comes to scriptural interpretation and we always need to guard against it is taking our 21st century brain and applying it to first century teaching because that'll mess us up. And so when we hear hot or cold, we think good and bad. Jesus, so then is Jesus saying, be a good or bad Christian? Don't be in the middle. No. Under no circumstances does Jesus want you to be bad Christian. Does he want you to be faithless? And that's what he's written to every one of these churches, right? What we read earlier in, in Sardis, stop being faithless. He don't want that. So Jesus here in talking to Laodicea, specifically mentioning these words are very important because the context of the city of Laodicea. Six miles north, there were a whole bunch of hot springs. Hot. Eleven miles to the east, there was cold, pure mountain water. But Laodicea specifically, and we found it through archaeology, has an aqueduct bringing water from a hot spring into their city. But that aqueduct had to travel five miles. And water being pumped for five miles from one source that was hot into the city. You think it was hot by the time it got there? No. Lukewarm water was all they had. They didn't have a hot and cold on their tap. They just had one, and it was on, and it was lukewarm. So they come in from a hot day working in the yard, lukewarm water. They jump in their shower, lukewarm water. It's useless. When you come in from, a, from working in the yard, you want some cold water. You jump in that shower, you want some hot water. If you're sane. Jesus is saying, be useful. Be hot. Be cold. Be useful. Don't be in the middle. They would have known about the hot springs. They would have known about the cold mountain water. They would have been very familiar with the lukewarm water coming into town. And honestly, being pumped, the hot springs they found this aqueduct going to had a lot of minerals in it a lot of min- not like mineral water you can get on the shelf at the store that you know just tastes like regular water like if you've ever had r- real mineral water it tastes gross so they're drinking gross lukewarm water in town and so he says don't be gross and lukewarm don't be useless he says i know you people you take a big swig of that lukewarm mineral water you spit it out every time cuz it's a shock every time it's like drive out to west texas and take a big swig of tap water you're going to spit it out. I guarantee you, if you've, if you, if you have, if you've been to like Odessa, Texas and taken a drink of tap water, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is right, Sheila. Yes. It, yes. It is not pleasant. And so Jesus is saying, all you people know what this tastes like. It's not like the queen water, like Darren's out there. The queen water's good. Tell Darren next time you see him. He's the head of the water department. And uh, he, he, always, he, he always comes to the church to the test because he says we have the best water in town. Maybe he's just telling me that because I'm the pastor, but either way, I'll take it. Uh, Jesus is saying, You know what lukewarm water's like. It's not pleasant, it's detestable, it's useless to us. You want your water to be hot, you want your water to be cold, you don't want it in the middle. So Jesus isn't telling the believers to be good or bad to to be faithful or faithless he's saying be useful for me for the kingdom of Christ verse 17 you say I am rich I have prospered I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable poor blind and naked so again things are not really as they seem He says, Christians, you're saying you're rich, you've prospered, that you don't need any help in your life. Everything is great for you, is the way you're communicating to me. You're you're acting, though, Christian, as though you don't need God. You say you believe, but you're acting like you don't need him. He's saying, in reality, in eternity, spiritually, you need everything. So stop acting like you don't need anything. There was one of the commentators I read. He said, his name was Patterson. He said, self-sufficiency is the direct opposite of faith. Self-sufficiency is the direct opposite of faith. Acting like you've got everything you need is the opposite of telling Jesus, I need you, which is true. It, it It is an extreme danger for a believer to act like they don't need Jesus. These people would rather have faith in being self-sufficient than faith in the one who is all-sufficient. And Jesus says, I know, I know you guys. I know what's in you. I know you're acting like this. You need to change it. You need to stop it. Stop being that way. That is lukewarm. That's what Jesus is saying based on this context here. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to put to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Spiritual wealth that is bought through faith, having been refined by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We should not settle for fake imitations, things that simply make us feel good for the moment, but disguise or numb the real healing we need that only Jesus can bring. It may distract us for a little bit, the the, the things we use to, to numb or pull us away from where God would have us be, like watching, you know, mindlessly binging or Maybe we're ingesting certain substances or uh, maybe it's certain conversations we like to go to. Maybe it's political conversations that distract us from the reality of our hearts. Maybe it's feeling like we got to control every situation because we have a difficulty trusting the Lord. Jesus is saying, he let go of all of that. Come to me and find healing. Come to me and find Strength, or in this case, spiritual wealth. He's the only one that can provide true wealth. Only one who can provide honor from fine clothes, spiritually. The only one who can provide real sight that we need in our lives. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So again, he's telling them, repent, you're not too far gone. Repent, I'm giving you a chance to come back. Repent, come back. That's why I'm telling you this, so that you can change it. So you can fix it. So you can do what I would have for you to do. Live how I designed you to live. And then he gives us a famous passage, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, in my presence. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne, persevered until the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So I stand at the door and knock. Who has heard that phrase ever used before? I stand at the door and knock. But look at how Jesus uses it. He's he's saying this to a church. To Christians. He's not saying this to unbelievers. I'm standing at the door of your heart knocking. Let me in. He's saying it to Christians. I'm standing at the door knocking. Let me in. And remember what he said to the previous church. He said, I can open any door. I've got an all-access pass. But the one with an all-access pass is still knocking at the door. Giving us an opportunity to respond. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and eat with you. Again, first century, eating with someone is a very intimate thing. That was only reserved for close family, close friends. You didn't eat with just anybody. You didn't eat with just anybody and everybody. You ate with only your closest people. And so he's saying, I'm going to come in and I will allow you to be one of my closest people. I will come in and eat with you, and we will be close together. So I'm standing at the door. I'm banging at the door, knocking. Let me in. Let me in. I'm here to come in and eat with you, to be with you. Just open the door, Christian. Open the door and let me in your life. A lot of times, even as followers of Jesus, even saying, I will follow Jesus to the end. What we end up doing, it's like this. Maybe you don't do this. Maybe you've never done this. Have you ever had somebody come over to your house, and you didn't have time to clean up the whole house, and you just grabbed stuff and threw it in one room and locked the door so they wouldn't go in that room? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. I, I can tell. And if some of you've never done that, that's a life hack. You can take with you and use that all you want. Uh, Just to clean it up, you just throw it all in there and and say, don't go in, don't let anybody go in that room. Like that is the no no room. You do not go in that room. Like that, you open the door, it's going to explode. Do not go in there. Uh, We do that with Jesus sometimes in our lives. We allow him access to all these areas of our lives, our Sunday mornings, right? Every once in a while, we, we allow him access to, to a couple minutes after we wake up and we look at Scripture. But there are parts of our lives we keep the door shut and we don't let him in that room. Like, we don't let him in there. Maybe it's an issue we've had in our past that we don't like to talk about or think about. and We definitely don't want to open that door because it's going to open a whole flood of mess. We don't want to go there. We don't let him you know, get in uh, uh, dealing with, with our TV habits. We don't let him get in in certain conversations we have in our lives. We just keep those doors shut and don't let him in there. We let him in only certain parts of our hearts and we keep all the other doors closed off. As though we can, you know, control Jesus and limit his access. When in reality, he's saying what he just said in this passage of scripture, I can go in any door I want to go in. In reality, I know what's already behind that door. But I want you to open it for me. I want you to open it for me. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be difficult. I know you're going to cringe. But don't worry. I already know what's in there. I watched you shove it all in there and lock it. Just open it and let me fix it. Let me heal it. Let me clean it up. Let me take care of it. Just let me in. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I'm knocking, Christian. He's not beating down your door. He's just knocking. knocking saying, let me in, give me access, give me access to what's there. So he's telling this church, he's saying, I love you, church. He said that verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. He's giving them an opportunity to come back. If they would just open the door and let him in, let him in. It may be fearful, they may not know what's going to happen, but he said, if you just do it, just try it and see what happens. Just just try to open the door and let Jesus in. And so we take this chapter 3, what he has said to these churches. We need to take and apply to us today, and we will find ourselves in the presence of Jesus in, in, in a unique way that we never have before. He says, wake up, be strong, open the door, wake up, be strong, Open the door. Because some of those places in our hearts, things that we don't want to think about, things that we have closed off, maybe things we've closed off for years, decades, it's going to take a great amount of strength to open that door and allow him to heal us. Allow him to clean it up. Allow him to take care of the mess that we have accumulated over the course of our lives. Just says, wake up, be strong, open the door. Open it. And I have come to realize over these last few weeks, it takes great strength when you have been wounded to open doors. Only this week there were doors I haven't been able to open. For four and a half weeks I was able to open with my left hand. Because they were too tight, or they were too tough, or they were too heavy, they were too difficult. But if you've been wounded, the strength may not be there. Or if you haven't been in practice of opening doors, the strength may not be there. And it's going to take some difficulty, it's going to take some strength, it's going to take some practice, it's going to take some effort. But if you really want to open that door, you can open the door. With Jesus' help. He's been healing my wrist. And I remember there was one more door I wanted to open, and I got it just a couple days ago. I felt like I won the Super Bowl. I opened that door. But you got to open the door. Don't allow the lies of the enemy to convince you just to keep it shut. You've barricaded it. You've hit it behind a dresser. Open the door. Wake up. Be strong. Open the door. Maybe today the door you need to open is the door to your heart, the very first door, the door of belief. And you need to believe in Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. He came and he died for you, so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe that today and allow him to come in? And where he comes in, he does not leave. He's always with you to the end of the line, ushering you into eternity. Will you believe today? So whether you need to invite Jesus into your life for the very first time, or you need to open those doors of your heart that you've kept locked and sealed and allow him to come in, as he says uh, to that church in Laodicea. I stand at the door and knock. Open the door. Do you need to allow him in today?